Before we start this week's episode of How to Fix, a little bit of housekeeping. We are going to have a very special episode of How to Fix next week, which is our 10th episode of Series 1, and we're asking you what we should fix. All you need to do to get involved is to tweet us at Stephanie Boland or at Bloomfield SJ or email us stephanie.boland at prospectmagazine or one word dot co dot uk or steve.bloomfield at prospectmagazine or one word dot co dot uk uh, with your requests of what we should fix policy areas big issues around the world not personal problems none of that and send them to us We'll do the research and then come back and tell you how we're going to fix it. And we're going to do it as a quick-fire show with penalised points for going over time. Now, on with today's show. Hello, my name is Steve Bloomfield and this is How to Fix, the weekly podcast from Prospect where we try to fix some of the country's and the world's most pressing problems. This week, air pollution. Think of a city with an air pollution problem and a few years ago, Beijing probably would have sprung to mind. Dense fog, citizens in face masks. This was a problem that cities like London had left behind after the Clean Air Act of 1956 that dealt with the problems caused by the Great Smog of 1952. But while London and other cities in the UK don't suffer from a Great Smog today, they are feeling the effects of air pollution in far greater ways than many of us have realised. An estimated 40,000 deaths each year are attributable in some way to air pollution. Too many cars, of which too many of those are diesel, are causing serious health problems. So, can it be fixed? And if so, how? We're going to hear from the chair of the Transport Select Committee, Lillian Greenwood, from Sarah McFadgen at the British Lung Foundation, and the science editor of BuzzFeed UK, Kelly Oakes. This is one way that individual people can actually affect their own air pollution exposure by looking at the data that's out there. But first, here's prospect Stephanie Boland. Hello, Steph. Hi, Steve. What's the problem here that we're talking about? And I'm also interested in how this has suddenly sprung up as an issue because it really wasn't on the agenda even a year ago. It wasn't. I mean, the problem basically defined is that cities require you to move things around them, people or goods. And still, in most cities, the most efficient way of doing that is on the road. That means lorries, trucks, often individual cars, crazy as that sounds to us, living on the tube network. But we are becoming increasingly aware that this is a problem, and that's mostly been the work of campaigners over the past few years who have pointed out that it's a health concern. If we go back to the 2000s, we find that traffic was being raised as a climate, a kind of environmental concern, Mm. and that led to the introduction of diesel cars as a potential solution, which I think we're going to talk about in more detail soon. We're going to discover (laughs) that that was perhaps not the greatest of decisions. But what we're finding now is that partly as a fall of that decision that actually nitrous oxide particles which are particularly harmful to our health are a big problem so awareness is growing we're getting better at tracking our air quality and the voices pointing out that actually this is doing us a bit of harm are getting louder and louder okay um i should also point out a little bit later we will be heading down brixton road uh with our intrepid reporter alex dean Uh, but for now steph thank you very much indeed Kelly Oakes is the science editor of BuzzFeed UK and has written extensively about air pollution, particularly here in London, and she joins us now. Let's start with the government's air quality plans, which you've written a lot about, which perhaps aren't quite as well thought through as they could be. I think I think the criticism that gets levelled at them quite a lot is that the plans tend to be plans for more plans. 
rather than plans in themselves. And the latest one that's come out has been criticised because it's not actually forcing any local authorities to implement clean air zones, which are kind of zones in city centres or town centres where there would be disincentives for people to drive their cars there. So they're saying this is one option, but they're only saying use this as a last resort, not you should be doing this. So they're not forcing local authorities to do anything and they're not even... Are they doing much to persuade them? There is some funding available for it now in the kind of latest version of the plan, but they're actually telling them to only use it as a last resort not to do it as a good idea as one thing that would work and why do you think that is i mean um i think there's possibly a worry that by disincentivizing people from driving cars into city centers then local businesses would suffer perhaps people who drive their cars and like driving their cars around would be kind of angry about that and not not want to (laughs) not want to have to pay the penalty essentially it's probably a case of not wanting to rock the boat too much but from the people I've spoken to essentially the only way we're going to cut pollution in city centres is by having fewer cars and fewer high polluting cars like diesel cars actually driving around in them so that seems to be the the heart of the problem doesn't it that we drive cars and government doesn't want to stop us driving cars because they think that would be unpopular yeah exactly I mean um, I'm sure it would be unpopular but there seem to be very limited ways of actually fixing this problem and that is one of them that everyone can agree on that this actually would be a way to fix it. I mean even in the government's own technical report they say that 27 clean air zones are needed to fix the problem but they're not mandating any of them. So So they're saying we need this but up to you if you do it. We need this but try everything else you possibly can before we do this. Tell us a little bit about how bad it is here in London because I know you've done some work on streets that am I right in thinking kind of breached their limits for 2017 yeah it tends to be different streets every year this year it was Brixton Road that was the first to go and then Putney High Street tends to be bad Oxford Street also tends to be bad but I think this year actually has seen some improvements um I think there's been a scheme of getting electric buses down there instead and that kind of has been showing some sort of signs of lowering the pollution there but yeah and um, people started to call it the clean air new year's day when on the 5th <laughs> of january kind of we we breached this annual limit that's been set out so and what does that mean then if if an annual limit is breached so early in terms of you know the, the consequences for people that walk down there every day yeah i mean the the health consequences are quite clear there was a report out last year that showed forty thousand deaths every year at are attributable to um, air pollution and 11,000 of those come from nitrogen dioxide alone which is the limits we're talking about get breached every January so it's it's clearly a big problem. How do we take in that kind of data because so I live in New Cross and there's a bench off the old Kent Road that tells us how bad the air pollution is and I don't look at it because I have, <laughs> I have no control over it and I kind of don't want to know but there are people doing a lot of work to get as a good picture of the data across town right yeah yeah so the around london um there's a team at king's college who have 100 monitoring stations and you can go onto their website and have a look um and kind of see what the pollution is for that day is a kind of a broad picture and then there are also um startups uh, one for example is called plume they're based in paris but they are working on a sort of monitor that you can take around like attach to your backpack and carry it around with you and see on an app what the kind of pollution is where you are on that particular day and you can kind of choose to go 
down a side street instead of a main road, that sort of thing. So this is a way that you as an individual can at least try to avoid the most polluted streets. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, as we know that it's a problem right now, and we're not kind of tackling it as quickly as some people would like. This is one way that individual people can actually affect their own air pollution exposure by looking at the data that's out there. Kelly Oaks, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Now, as Kelly just mentioned, Brixton Road is one of the worst in London. Our very own Alex Dean commutes up it every day. So we sent him out to tell us what it's really like. So I'm standing on Brixton Road, uh, which is, you know, right by my house. Just looking around now, I can see six, seven buses uh, and obviously dozens and dozens of cars stretching kind of as far as the eye can see. I actually used to go on runs down this road uh, after I first moved in, uh, which wasn't a very sensible thing to do. That Guardian piece of this road breached its annual air pollution limit this year by the 5th of January. I mean, that, that's a 365-day limit breached in, you know, five days. That was Alex Dean on the Brixton Road. You're listening to How to Fix. We're joined now by Sarah McFadden, Policy Manager from the British Lung Foundation. Sarah, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Can we start by talking about the health problems caused by air pollution? There was a report recently that said that 40,000 deaths each year could be attributable to air pollution. How big a problem then is this for the country? Well, at the British Lung Foundation, we've been increasingly worried about the effect of air pollution on all our health. The reason that we sort of got into campaigning on air pollution in the first place was because the patients we support, people who are living with a long-term lung condition, something like COPD or asthma, were coming to us and saying that on days when pollution levels were higher, their symptoms were much worse. Um, They were finding it harder to breathe, harder to get out and about, Um, you know, just kind of harder to live their normal lives. So we know that breathing in polluted air for people who've already got a lung condition can really exacerbate their symptoms and in some case can even put them at risk of having an attack and winding up in hospital. Um, But the effects go much wider than that. So air pollution really is a risk to all our health. Breathing in polluted air has been linked to lung cancer. It's been linked to heart disease. And there's new evidence coming out all the time, actually, which is linking air pollution with a whole range of health conditions. So we've seen potential links with diabetes. We've seen links with Alzheimer's. So I think there's probably quite a lot that we actually don't know yet about what the full health effects could be. And it could even be more than we think. And Sarah, is this a problem that's got worse over the last few years? And if so, why do you think that is? So if you actually look at the at the numbers, at the raw data, our air quality is improving very slowly. It's not improving quickly enough. So we know that people in towns and cities across the country are still breathing in um, levels of pollutants which are both illegal in some cases and in most cases dangerous. I think the reason why we're talking about it more and more and the reason why people are becoming more worried is because that evidence about the health effects is becoming clearer. So, you know, a few years ago, I think there was a lot less research that had been published. There was a lot less kind of public discussion about what the effect of breathing in that polluted air could have on us. 
um, you know, the, the, the big kind of policy driver in this area has been about climate change, um, not necessarily about the health effects of the kind of pollutants that are in our air and our, in our atmosphere. Um, so although it's not necessarily getting worse, we definitely understand more about the effects of it. So I think that the need to act is becoming more urgent. And Sarah, obviously there's things that we need to do across the board, but in terms of prioritising, what would you say are the most urgent steps that need to be taken? Well, I think we've got this commitment from the government to phase out new diesel and petrol cars by 2040. And um, that's a good thing. But I think what we need to do most urgently is look at how we can get the most polluting vehicles out of the most polluted areas. So in town and city centres, most of the pollution that we're breathing in is from traffic. So cars, buses, lorries, vans, kind of all the different vehicles that are driving around there. Um, So that's really where we think we need to look at most urgently, both by putting into place more clean air zones to actually restrict the number of those polluting vehicles that are driving into city centres and putting in place the sort of fiscal incentives that we need for people to either upgrade their diesel car to something cleaner or to sort to not buy diesel cars in the first place. So um, we've been looking to the budget next week. We're very hopeful that the Chancellor is going to announce um, higher taxes on new diesel cars to start sending a message that that's not a clean choice, it's not a green choice. Um, and we would also like to see a scrappage scheme to help people who bought their older diesel cars in good faith upgrade that to a cleaner model. Can we talk about that uh issue of diesel cars that were bought particularly around 2000 and in the years after that this was they bought these cars they were encouraged by the government to buy them weren't they because they were supposed to be cleaner yeah that's absolutely right um you know most people bought their diesel cars because they thought that it was a better option um and all of the all of the policy drivers were were there to get people to buy diesel because the co2 emissions were lower so it's good for climate change But although the CO2 emissions are lower, the nitrogen dioxide emissions, which is the stuff that's most poisonous, most dangerous for us to breathe in, um, those are actually much higher on diesel cars. But we weren't really thinking about that back in the early 2000s, like you said. Um, So it's, you know, most people who own a diesel car bought it really in good faith, thinking that they were making a good choice. Now we know that's not true. We need to find ways to get people out of those diesel cars and into cleaner models as quickly as we can. Can you understand how some people might be either frustrated or just a bit disbelieving then of any government that says, oh, no, no, we've changed our minds. Actually, this is the thing you need to do to improve air quality or or help the environment. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's very frustrating. You know, certainly a lot of the people who we support at the British Lung Foundation, um, you know, people who've got chronic lung conditions, they do need their cars to get around. And many of them bought diesel cars um, and they can't very easily just stop using them. So, It is a really difficult issue and that's why we're really keen that we have some sort of scrappage scheme to really incentivise people and help people move to a cleaner model. And at the same time, and a slightly longer term goal, but we we do need a big investment in public transport in towns and cities so that there are other better options for people to get around. Are there areas where there has been good progress in you know in towns across the UK or overseas um I think what the mayor of London is doing is very positive um we've been very supportive of the new T charge which will charge the most polluting vehicles extra for driving into the center of London based on the modeling that will bring down levels of pollutants um 
quite significantly over the next few years. So I think that's a really good example. And we'd like to see other towns and cities doing similar things. Um, and when you look at the evidence from Europe, there are other cities. Um, Berlin is one. Um, Milan is another one, I think, um, where they brought in similar schemes to try to restrict the most polluting vehicles from driving in the worst affected areas and that's been quite effective but the evidence is that you you do need to actually put in place measures to either prevent people driving in the city center or make it unattractive to do that um, and without having those kind of measures and, and levers in place you don't get the reductions in pollution that we need. Sarah McFadden uh, we'll leave it there uh, thank you very much indeed that was Sarah McFadden from the British Lung Foundation. We're joined now by Lillian Greenwood, who's the chair of the Transport Select Committee and a former Shadow Transport Secretary. Four select committees have launched an unprecedented joint inquiry into air quality, of which transport is one. Uh, Lillian, thanks very much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Now, let's start with the fact that four committees have come together to launch this inquiry. Does that sort of help to underline not just the scale of the problem, but the desire of politicians on on all sides in in Parliament to actually do something about this? Yeah, I mean, I think it it tells you how important this issue is, and it's certainly risen up the public agenda in recent years. Public Health England say that poor air quality is the largest environmental risk uh, to public health. And of course, uh, it crosses a number of uh, government departmental boundaries. And I think that's why the select committees have come together, partly to sort of say to government, you have to get out of your silos. You've got to think about this across the whole of government and what needs to be done and how you can work together uh, to address what's a, a really pressing issue. And is that, you think, one of the reasons why governments have found it difficult to tackle this? Because it does cover, as you say, you know, lots of different government departments. I'm not sure I would want to use that as a, a reason to defend not having acted uh, sufficiently up to now. But it, undoubtedly, that's a, a, an issue that, that you can have things falling between two stools or between four stools even. But I think there's a growing recognition that something needs to be done. Of course, the government have been taken to court about their failure to act. And that's perhaps what's more likely to have prompted the activity. But I think as the select committees, we're wanting to work together and we're recognising that this uh, tackling this problem requires uh, action on a number of uh, fronts in terms of policy. You say something needs to be done. What's the something? Uh, Well, I guess that's precisely what we're going to be looking (laughs) at in our inquiry. We're wanting to know whether government policies take into account uh, health and environmental impacts uh, of air quality. We're going to look at the plans that they've now uh, set out uh, in their air quality plan and say, are these effective? Are they proportionate? Are they going to deliver reductions as quickly as, uh, as are needed and as quickly as possible? We're going to look at whether other places are doing it better and whether they've got that collaboration in place that's uh, that's necessary. There's a bit of a challenge here, isn't there, in that obviously there's a lot of local variation into what policies are going to be needed where. Are you kind of looking at it across the country? 
Well, I think that that's a really important point, is that the government's plan actually pushes a lot of responsibility onto local authorities. And there's a real concern and a pushback indeed from a lot of local authorities saying this can't just be left to us. It needs real leadership uh, from the centre. So we'll be looking, I think, in our inquiry at that balance between what's the right role for government and how do they support local authorities uh, to deliver this at a local level. A lot of the problems we look at on this programme are problems that we know what the solutions are. It's just either there isn't quite the political will or more often there isn't the money. Is this one of those problems or do you think that we're still in that phase of, well, actually, how do we try to fix this? Are there actually too many complicated factors involved? I think we we know to a large extent what the what the issues are and indeed what some of the solutions can be. The reason that transport is such an important part uh, of this inquiry is that it is road transport that's responsible uh, for air pollution in most uh, cases. About 80% of nitrogen oxide uh, emissions c- are come from uh, road vehicles. It is diesel, cars, vans, buses uh, that are the cause of the problem. Um, and we know what some of the solutions are. It is cleaning up Uh, vehicles, it's getting some of the the most polluting vehicles off our roads, but it also might be reducing the number of vehicles on our roads at all by helping people to switch to alternative, to public transport or to active transport, you know, cycling uh, and walking, which of course has benefits beyond tackling uh, air pollution. It's about general health uh, in the population. And of course, things that tackle air pollution might also help to tackle uh, the growing problem of congestion in our towns and cities too. So there's a political issue here then, isn't there? Because it's all very well saying, well, you know, we need better public transport and we need fewer people to be using cars. But let's be honest, there are very few politicians that want to say, I'm going to take your car off you. Uh, I mean, I think we have seen some quite brave uh, politicians being prepared to do things um, here in London. Of course, some long time ago now, we had the congestion charge, which was precisely about saying that if you want to tackle this issue, you have to take action in my own uh, city uh, of Nottingham we've got the workplace parking levy which is about trying to tackle uh, congestion particularly to encourage people to use uh, public transport so that's or charging one. people so to that have... charges employers for for parking for their par- parking at um, you know at their places uh, of work and the money from that has been invested into public transport. Um, so I think there are things we there are things that we know can be done, and I, I guess that's one of the concerns um, from local authorities. Actually, is that those are difficult political decisions, and they want the government to be supporting them and assisting them rather than sort of saying, right, well, the ball's entirely with you, and you have to um, perhaps have some of those difficult conversations that we might need to have as a society about how are we going to tackle this problem and what does that mean for for all of us and and our behaviours. You mentioned public transport there. There's definitely a capacity to incentivise as well as disincentivise, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people would like to, you know, use public transport. It doesn't mean you have to get rid of your car. It's about 
being able to make choices for uh, each uh, journey, but it's got to be sufficiently convenient uh, and reliable. If you know that uh, your, you know, your bus or train or tram is going to turn up uh, when you expect it, that they're reasonably frequent, that it's a good experience when you get it, you're more likely to take public transport than not. And we have to make sure that we've got the things in place to make it a uh, a realistic choice for people uh, rather than it just feeling like well you've got no choice you've got to stop using your car that isn't I don't think that's realistic. Lillian Greenwood thank you very much. Thank you. So Steph have we fixed it? I think once again we know how to fix it but it is not yet fixed. No. This is the recurring <laughs> theme of these podcasts. So I think what we've heard quite interestingly is the same solutions coming up again and again, which is Mm -hmm. you have to get people out of cars. You have to make it less attractive to drive and more attractive to take public transport, walk or cycle. The problem with that, as Lillian Greenwood pointed out, is that when you start moving those parameters, you have knock-on effects in all sorts of areas. What I find fascinating is that, you know, Yes, Ken Livingstone in London introduced the congestion charge. And okay, fine. In Nottingham, there's this workplace levy on uh, you know parking cars in town, and and that's fine. But very few other political leaders have taken these big risks that Ken Livingstone did take here in London 15 years ago. We haven't seen congestion charges really uh, anywhere else. The government now is saying it's going to phase out uh, the sale of diesel and petrol cars by 2040, but. That's in 23 years. That's This is a problem right now. No politician is willing to say, right, let's get rid of diesel cars by 2020 and petrol cars by 2025, are they? I think we may find increased political will is coming soon, though. I don't know if you've seen the new tube advertisement campaign that's popped up about air quality in London. Oh, is this the one with there's like a, a coffee, but it's got essentially soot on it? Yeah, and babies' bottles and things that you use every day. And that's been brought in by the Mayor's Office and by TfL to raise awareness of how bad London's air quality is and basically to try and get the public on the side of the politicians who do want to change things. Whether or not that is going to get everyone in London clamouring to, you know, put a higher charge on their cars, I think, remains to be seen. But there is at least the stirrings of some renewed political will there. Stirrings is good. We'll take stirrings. Um, Okay, we will leave it there. Um, Before we end, though, uh, another reminder about next week's programme, which is entirely reliant on you, dear listener. Uh, You need to get in touch and tell us what you would like to fix. Uh, You can tweet us. Stephanie, you are? I am at Stephanie Boland. And I am at Bloomfield SJ. Don't do at Steve Bloomfield because that is someone else who's never actually tweeted. Really? By the way, yeah. Um, I'm not bitter. I'm just, you know, that's just how it is. <laughs> I like Bloomfield SJ. You sound like a Jesuit priest or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there we are. You can tweet to either of us, both of us. That is it for today's show. My thanks to Lillian Greenwood, Sarah McFadden, and Kelly Oakes. House Fix was recorded and edited by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio here in the heart of Westminster. For further reading, go to prospectmagazine.co.uk slash how to fix. And if you liked what you heard, please do us a favour and rate us on iTunes. I'm Steve Bloomfield. That was How to Fix. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.